Okay, welcome back. We are reading Chapter 4 of Gatsby today. On Sunday morning, while church bells rang in the villages along shore, the world and its mistress returned to Gatsby's house and twinkled hilariously on his lawn. Don't you love that metaphor of the world having a mistress um, and that the people are kind of that mistress? He's a bootlegger, said the young ladies, moving somewhere between his cocktails and his flowers. One time he killed a man who had found out that he was nephew to von Hindenburg and second cousin to the devil. Reach me a rose, honey, and pour me a last drop into that there crystal glass. So these women are coming to Gatsby's house, but they're, um, sorry, I'm just moving the computer. So, but they are gossiping about him and they all still think that he's just a bootlegger because how would a 32-year-old somewhat roughneck looking individual um, come into that kind of money? But they say it as they're drinking his alcohol, so hypocrites, um, pretending to be nice or to like him and yet gossiping about him. Once I wrote down the empty spaces of a timetable, the names of those who came to Gatsby's house that summer. It is an old timetable now, disintegrating at its folds and headed, this schedule in effect July 5th, 1922. But I can still read the gray names, and they will give you a better impression than my generalities of those who accepted Gatsby's hospitality and paid him the subtle tribute of knowing nothing whatever about him. And so some of you had written on your comments that Nick notices um, types of people instead of specific people. Like he noticed the contralto who was crying when she was singing, she was drunk. He noticed Mr. Mumbles or guys who he didn't really care to know because they were probably lower class. He notices girls, but he doesn't give specific names. So now he's going back and trying to really characterize the people who are at the party. He does it to characterize Gatsby. Is Gatsby upper class, middle class, or lower class? And if he is upper class, why is he inviting random people in from New York? So the names are not important, but when I'm done reading them, I will explain why I think he put them all in there. From East Egg then came the Chester Beckers and the Leeches and a man named Bunsen, whom I knew at Yale, and Dr. Webster Civet, who was drowned last summer up in Maine, and the Hornbeams and the Willie Voltaires and a whole clan named Blackbuck, who always gathered in a corner and flipped up their noses like goats at whosoever came near. So first of all, we do have a guy from Yale, and we have a doctor, but the doctor seems to maybe have a problem with alcohol because Maine is not known for their riptides as much as like the Carolinas are. So I'm assuming that he might have been drunk when he was swimming, although that is an assumption. Um, and then he talks about this family or clan, which he calls them, um, kind of stuck up. And the Ismays and the Christies are rather Hubert Auerbach and Mr. Christie's wife read between the lines on that one, they're cheating, and Edgar Beaver, whose hair said they turned cotton white one winter afternoon for no good reason at all. Kind of an implication that there's like a superstition or something that if you are involved in um, naughty behavior or immoral behavior that, you know, it'll kind of be revealed through your person. Um, Clarence Endive was from East Egg, as I remember. He came only once 
Notice that only once, and then he wants nothing to do with it. In white knickerbockers and had a fight with a bum named Eddie in the garden. From farther out on the island came the Cheetles and the O.R.P. Schraders and the Stonewall Jackson Abrams of Georgia and the Fish Guards and the Ripley Snells. Snell was there three days before he went to the penitentiary, so drunk out on the gravel drive that Mrs. Ulysses Sweat's automobile ran over his right hand. And penitentiary is another word for jail. Um, the Dancies came to an S.B. Whitebait, who is well over 60, and Maurice A. Flink and the Hammerheads and Beluga the Tobacco Importer and Beluga's Girls. So he apparently um, gets around. From West Egg came the Poles and the Mulreddies and Cecil Roebuck and Cecil Schoen and Gulick, um, the state senator, and Newton Orchid, who controlled films par excellence, and Eckhaust and Clyde Cohen and Don S. Schwartzy, the son, and Arthur McCarty, all connected with the movies in one way or another. So movies back in that time, it was still kind of lower class. Like Edgar Allan Poe's um, birth mom was an actress, and one of the reasons that it was hard to place him for adoption or for someone to adopt him was because his birth mom was an actress and people thought that they were like people you couldn't trust because they played other roles and sometimes they um even played different genders think shakespeare and they also um wore costumes so they were considered like immoral or low so all of these people are in film and it wasn't until the 20s that film started to become kind of cool um let's see where was i uh sorry Um, and the Catlips and the Bembergs and G. Earl Muldoon, brother to that Muldoon who afterwards strangled his wife. So these people are very um, immoral. Da Fontano, the promoter, came there, and Ed Legros and James B. Rotgut Ferret, and the DeJongs and Ernest Lilly. They came to gamble, and when Ferret wandered into the garden, it meant he was cleaned out, so he lost all his money. An associated traction would have to fluctuate profitably the next day, meaning that he also was involved in um, the stock market, and he was in charge of it, and he would make back his money by charging his stockholders um, more um, so that he could, you know, um, be okay. I wonder if Fitzgerald had fun with some of these names. They sound made up. And like odd, like cat lips. <laughs> All right. Anyway, a man named Clip Springer was there so often and so long that he became known as the Border. So, out of all these people, you don't need to know any of them except Clip Springer. There are like nine characters, I think, in Gatsby that you need to know, and Clip Springer is one of them. Um, he became known as the Border. I doubt if he had any other home. So, I don't have this problem because I'm not rich, but. Um, sometimes rich people are really preyed on, and um, there are people who try to charm their way in. Nowadays, we see this issue come up with online dating, where there might be like a middle-aged woman who's being pursued by a much younger man, or vice versa, an older man pursued by a much younger woman. And people always say, oh, they're just out for their money. If you watch reality shows, that's kind of the premise of a lot of the 90-day fiancé relationship. So Clip Springer attaches himself to Gatsby because he sees money. Um, I don't think that they're lovers. Maybe. I don't think so. Um, I think that Clip Springer is just a freeloader and a user. 
of people. Of theatrical people, there were Gus Ways and Horace O'Donovan and Lester Meyer and George Duckweed, <laughs> another funny name, and Francis Bull. Also from New York were the Chromes and the Backhysons and the Denickers and Russell Betty and the Corrigans and the Kellers and the Dewars and the Scullies and S.W. Belcher, that had to be a fun name, and the Smirks <laughs> and the Young Quins, divorce now which was scandalous back then, and Henry L. Palmetto, who killed himself by jumping in front of a subway train in Times Square. It's gruesome. Betty McClellan arrived always with four girls. They were never quite the same ones in physical person, but they were so identical one with another that it inevitably seemed they had been there before. So he has a type. He doesn't care what the girls' names are or anything about him as long as they're his, quote, type. And when one annoys him, he just gets rid of her and gets another, or maybe she takes off. Um, reminds me of like the Playboy Mansion girls, I think. I've forgotten their names, Jacqueline, I think, or else Consuela or Gloria or Judy or June, and their last names were either the, the melodious names of flowers and months or the sterner ones of the great American capitalists whose cousins, if pressed, they would confess themselves to be. In addition to all these, I can remember that Faustina O'Brien came there at least once and the Bedecker girls and young Brewer who had his nose shot off in the war and Mr. L. Bruxberger and Miss Hogg, his fiance, and Ardita Fitzpeters and Mr. P. Jewett once headed the American Legion and Miss Claudia Hip with a man reputed to be her chauffeur and a prince of something whom we called Duke and whose name, if I ever knew it, I have forgotten. All these people came to Gatsby's house in the summer. So in other words, none of them are important, and if they are remembered, it's for immoral or bad things or gruesome or sad things. At 9 o'clock one morning late in July, Gatsby's gorgeous car lurched up the rocky drive to my door and gave out a burst of melody from its three-noted horn. It was the first time he had called on me, though I had gone to two of his parties, mounted in his hydroplane, and at his urgent invitation made frequent use of his beach. "'Good morning, old sport. You're having lunch with me today, and I thought we'd ride up together.' He was balancing himself on the dashboard of his car with that resourcefulness of movement that is so peculiarly American. That comes, I suppose, with the absence of lifting work or rigid sitting in youth, and even more with the formless grace of our nervous sporadic games. This quality was continually breaking through his punctilious manner in the shape of restlessness.' He was never quite still. There was always a tapping foot somewhere or the impatient opening and closing of a hand. He saw me looking with admiration at his car. It's pretty, isn't it, old sport? He jumped off to give me a better view. Haven't you ever seen it before? I'd seen it. Everybody had seen it. It was a rich cream color, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous length, with triumphant hat boxes and supper boxes and tool boxes, and terrace with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns, sitting behind many layers of glass and a sort of green leather conservatory we started to town. So let me explain something. The cars back in this time period were black. That was a standard color. They were all black. If you had money, you could get them custom painted to any color you wanted, but it's obviously more costly. Same thing as today. I mean, cars generally come in five or six shades. If you want a pink car, purple car, you have to pay extra. Um, the hat boxes, supper boxes, toolboxes, they had like boxes that you could kind of open. There was like an area that flipped up so you could sit in the trunk area. 
um, but you weren't really in the trunk, but it wasn't really a seat either. And a lot of people um, went on picnics with their cars. They could show off their car. They could eat outside. They could talk to people, and they would have supper. Um, Drive-in theaters started to be built. Um, I'm not sure when, but I know that that was part of the attraction was that you could do it in your car. Um, And cars became a symbol of power, of status, of wealth, of a carefree life. Um, It was a very fun thing to do to go on a Sunday drive. So Gatsby's car is awesome. It's got everything you would want in it. And he also has, um, I think the inside of this one is green. Yeah, green leather conservatory. And so green in the book symbolizes a number of things. It is associated with money, but it's also associated with um, a dream. And we'll get to that later. So the labyrinth of wind shields might have caught your attention. So they didn't quite know how to make um, glass into a convex or kind of a a form that um, wouldn't crack and shatter on people if it was hit. So they would split the windshield up. Either it was a Model T form where it looks like a piece of long rectangular glass um, in a frame Or they would split that and do like horizontal pieces of glass and they would have like six or seven windshields in the front and you could actually open them. They would turn to open. Um, You can Google that for pictures if you want. But um, the point is that Gatsby's car has every kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, asset that you could think of. Um, And Nick does admire it greatly. I had talked with him perhaps half a dozen times in the past month and found, to my disappointment, wait a second, let me go back. The inside is green, so Gatsby's trying to look rich like money. The outside is cream. He misses it. What is the color of the wealthy? White. He's kind of tacky. He's cream and green, and upper class doesn't do that. We'll pay attention to Tom and Daisy's cars um, when they come up. I talked with Gatsby perhaps half a dozen times in the past month and found, to my disappointment, that he had little to say. So my first impression that he was a person of some undefined consequence had gradually faded, and he had become simply the proprietor of an elaborate roadhouse next door. So this is interesting because Gatsby hides or is able to hide his true identity by not talking. Be careful. Life Lesson 101. Be careful of people who don't share too much. They're usually hiding something. People who who share, who do share too much might be gossipy. So you just have to be aware. And then came that disconcerting ride. We hadn't reached West Egg Village before Gatsby began leaving his elegant sentences unfinished and slapping himself indecisively on the knee of his caramel-colored suit. Look here, old sport, he broke out surprisingly. What's your opinion of me, anyhow? A little overwhelmed, I began the generalized evasions which that question deserves. Well, I'm going to tell you something about my life, he interrupted. I don't want you to get the wrong idea of me from all these stories you hear. So he was aware of the bizarre accusations that flavored conversation in his halls. I'll tell you God's truth. His right hand suddenly ordered divine retribution to stand by. What do you know if someone says, I'll tell you the truth, or let me be honest with you. They're usually going to say something that might be dishonest. Um, It's just a common tactic that um, people do naturally. So be aware of it. I am the son of some wealthy people in the Middle West, all dead now. That's convenient because then Nick can't 
look them up, and Nick's from the Midwest. So I was brought up in America but educated at Oxford because all my ancestors have been educated there for many years. It's a family tradition. He looked at me sideways, and I knew why Jordan Baker had believed he was lying. So there's a a belief that if people look to the left when they're talking to you and then back to you, or if they can't meet your eyes directly, that they're lying. Um, I've tested it with people through the years, students, friends, um, and it it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, 70% accurate. Um, if I were to guess, it's not 100%. But anyway, he hurried the phrase educated at Oxford or swallowed it or choked on it as though it had bothered him before. And with this doubt, his whole statement fell to pieces. And I wondered if there wasn't something a little sinister about him after all. What part of the Middle West? I inquired casually. San Francisco. I see. My family all died and I came into a good deal of money. His voice was solemn as if the memory of that sudden extinction of a clan still haunted him. For a moment, I suspected he was pulling my leg, but a glance at him convinced me otherwise. Pulling my leg means like joking with him. Nick is a little shocked because anyone who is even remotely educated about geography knows that San Francisco is not in the Midwest. It's on the West Coast. So either Gatsby is not educated or he's just terrible with geography, but something is wrong. After that, I lived like a young Raja in all the capitals of Europe, Paris, Venice, Rome, collecting jewels, chiefly rubies. Rubies were more important. Pearls and rubies in the 1920s were the diamonds of today. So he's basically saying that he had all of this extra time to just collect these things. Hunting big game, that makes him a manly man. Painting a little, educated. Things for myself only and trying to forget something very sad that had happened to me long ago. With an effort, I managed to restrain my incredulous laughter. The very phrases were worn so threadbare that they evoked no image except that of a turbaned character leaking sawdust at every pore as he pursued a tiger through the Bois de Boulogne. I probably butchered the name of that. Um, So Nick feels like Gatsby is like basically plagiarizing, like that he's stealing things from movies and books to try to characterize himself as this wealthy man who came from Oxford and had all these terrible things happen to him. That's another thing. One of my friends is a therapist, and she said that she always warns her clients. She usually works with women who um, come to her because of a breakup or or they're just dealing with life and not dealing with it well. And she said that... um, If the girl is dating like a narcissist, she says some of the red flags you're supposed to look out for are if the person um, is a victim, like constantly a victim, like this woman did that to me, then that one did that to me, then that one did that to me. And it's just one sign. I mean, maybe she just picks, you know, um, bad guys, or maybe she just picks guys who've been through a lot, but Um, It's kind of interesting that Gatsby here is painting himself as a victim. Then came the world sport. It was a great relief and I tried very hard to die, but I seemed to bear an enchanted life. I accepted a commission as first lieutenant when it began. In the Argonne Forest, I took two machine gun detachments so far forward that there was a half mile gap on either side of us where the infantry couldn't advance. We stayed there two days and two nights, 130 men with 16 Lewis guns, and when the infantry came up at last, they found the insignia of three German divisions among the piles of the dead. 
All right. I've asked my military friends if this is true, and they said it could be, but it sounds like one of those war stories that's a little exaggerated and um, a little too much of Gatsby being a hero, but they said it's possible. I was promoted to be a major, and every Allied government gave me a decoration, even Montenegro, little Montenegro, down on the Adriatic Sea. Little Montenegro, he lifted up the words and nodded at them with a smile. The smile comprehended Montenegro's troubled history and sympathized with the brave struggles of the Montenegrin people. It appreciated fully the chain of national circumstances which had elicited this tribute for Montenegro's warm little heart. My incredulity was submerged in fascination. Now it was like skimming hastily through a dozen magazines. So Nick's realizing that Gatsby's probably making this up or getting it from something. And he's like, this is fascinating to watch this guy just bury himself in his own lies. He reached in his pocket and a piece of metal slung in a ribbon fell into my palm. That's the one from Montenegro. To my astonishment, the thing had an authentic look. Now, remember, Nick is from the military. He did serve in the Army. He has seen medals. And back in this time period, it would have been very difficult to um, find like a like a medal shop or an awards shop where they could create authentic-looking military medals. So Nick believes that this is a real medal. Um, and to my so, sorry, it says something I'll probably butcher. Order ID Danilo ran the circular legend Montenegro Nicholas Rex. Turn it over. Mayor Jay Gatsby, I read, for valor extraordinary. Here's another thing I always carry. So that is an authentic medal. Maybe his story is true. But the fact that he's carrying it around is weird. It's 1922. Most people did not carry. I know that people in my family didn't carry their medals around, especially if there was that much bloodshed. Um, a personal story, my uncle served in Vietnam and earned a Purple Heart. We did not find out that he had a Purple Heart until after he died. And his Navy friends showed up and said, did he show you his Purple Heart? And even his wife was shocked. And we searched the whole house and found it in a corner of the attic um, and then they told her the story that he was a medic. And I don't remember the details of the story, but something that he either carried a man out of um, the jungles when they were shot down or that he saved a man's life. I can't remember exactly, but it it always struck me that he never told anyone in the family that he was um, he didn't want to talk about it. And I think it was because they they lost quite a few quite a few soldiers that day. So it's weird that Gatsby's carrying this around. He's desperate for Nick to believe his story. Here's another thing I always carry, a souvenir of Oxford days. It was taken in Trinity Quad. The man on my left is now the Earl of Doncaster. It was a photograph of half a dozen young men in blazers loafing in an archway through which were visible a host of spires. There was Gatsby looking a little, not much, younger with a cricket bat in his hand. Then it was all true. I saw the skins of tigers flaming in his palace on the Grand Canal. I saw him opening a chest of rubies to ease with their crimson-lighted depths, the gnawings of his broken heart. So that's a little strange, too, that he has a, a photograph of his Oxford days, which would have been, like, I don't know, before the war. So 10 years earlier, um, 
I don't know about you guys, but I don't carry pictures that old. Even on my phone, if I have pictures on my phone or on my Amazon photos, it would take forever to like scroll through them and find one. Um, so it's just bizarre that he carries that around. He's desperate for Nick to trust him. Um, I'm going to make a big request of you today, he said, pocketing his souvenirs with satisfaction. So I thought you ought to know something about me. I didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. Why does he care? You see, I usually find myself among strangers because I drift here and there trying to forget the sad thing that happened to me. He hesitated. You'll hear about it this afternoon. At lunch? No, this afternoon. I happen to find out that you're taking Miss Baker to tea. Aha, so that's why he wants to be friends with Nick. He wants to get to Miss Baker. Do you mean you're in love with Jordan Baker? No, old sport, I'm not. But Miss Baker has kindly consented to speak to you about this matter. I hadn't the faintest idea what this matter was, but I was more annoyed than interested. I hadn't asked Jordan to tea in order to discuss Mr. Jay Gatsby. Remember, Nick wants to, like, actually date Jordan. I was sure the request would be something utterly fantastic, and for a moment I was sorry I'd ever set foot upon his overpopulated lawn. Why is Nick so annoyed? Because Nick doesn't have Gatsby's money, and people like Jordan are interested in money, so he thinks, great, I broke up with a girl back home, I broke up with a girl in Jersey, now I'm dating Jordan, and this guy's going to steal her. Awesome. I thought he wanted to be my friend. Turns out he wanted my girl. He wouldn't say another word. His correctness grew on him as we neared the city. We passed Port Roosevelt, where there was a glimpse of red-belted, ocean-going ships, and sped along a cobbled slum lined with the dark, undeserted saloons of the faded, gilt 1900s. Then the Valley of Ashes opened out on both sides of us, and I had a glimpse of Mrs. Wilson straining at the garage pump with panting vitality as we went by. Love that image of the city. And Mrs. Wilson, she, like, even just the diction there. So when you write your rhetorical analysis essay, diction is definitely um, one of the options you can use for um, rhetorical analysis. Straining, panting, vitality. You can picture it. It's almost like animalistic in the way that he describes her or primitive. With fenders spread like wings, we scattered light through half Astoria, only half, for as we twisted among the pillars of the elevated, I heard the familiar jug-jug spat of a motorcycle and a frantic policeman rode alongside. So Gatsby's getting pulled over for speeding. All right, old sport, called Gatsby. We slowed down. Taking a white card from his wallet, he waved it before the man's eyes. Right you are, agreed the policeman, tipping his cap. Know you next time, Mr. Gatsby. Excuse me. What was that? I inquired. The picture of Oxford. So Nick's kind of joking with him, like, how'd you get out of a ticket? You have an inside connection? I was able to do the commissioner a favor once, and he sends me a Christmas card every year. So Gatsby got out of a ticket because of his privilege, his wealth privilege. He literally played the wealth card. Ha ha, pun intended. Um, and there is kind of a an unknown or um, an untold kind of courtesy for like police officers, family members, you know, if they get pulled over, they can kind of throw a name or a picture or something. There's like a bumper sticker some people have in their cars, or it used to be true back in the day, um, where if they got pulled over, they wouldn't get a ticket. Um, and so Gatsby doesn't even get pulled over at all. Must be nice. Um, okay, so 
over the great bridge with the sunlight through the grinders, girders, making a constant flicker upon the moving cars, with the city rising up across the river in white heaps and sugar lumps, all built with a wish out of non-olfactory money. Love that. Reference the American dream. The city scene from the Queensboro Bridge is always a city scene for the first time in its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world. So Nick's feeling excited about the fact that maybe Gatsby did come from nothing and become something. I mean, he served in the military. Um, he did go to Oxford, but when I say came from nothing, like he lost his whole family. So yes, he has an education, but he doesn't really have anything. So Nick's kind of like romanticizing the dream right now. And as he's driving into New York City, he's seeing New York City in all of its glory and beauty. Um, a dead man passed us in a hearse heaped with blooms, followed by two carriages with drawn blinds and by more cheerful carriages for friends. The friends looked out at us with the tragic eyes and short upper lips of southeastern Europe. And I was glad that the sight of Gatsby's splendid car was included in their somber holiday. Their like um, uh, parade kind of to the um, gravesite. They have the hearse, and then you know they're all kind of following. So he calls it a somber holiday. As we crossed Blackwell's Island, a limousine passed us, driven by a white chauffeur, in which sat three modish Negroes, two bucks, and a girl. I laughed aloud as the yokes of their eyeballs rolled toward us in haughty rivalry. Anything can happen now that we've slid over this bridge, I thought. Anything at all. Even Gatsby could happen without any particular wonder. All right, first of all, let's address the racism and the racist language that Fitzgerald uses. Fitzgerald was a product of his um, time, and he calls the two um, African-American men bucks, and he notices not their eyes but the yolks of their eyeballs, um, which is obviously racist and and um, in their depiction of their eyes. The thing that I do like about that section, though, is that if you think about the fact that um, the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves in 1863, I think, two or three, um, and now it's 1922, and you have um, a group of African-Americans that are so wealthy that they have a white chauffeur and a limo. And Nick kind of thinks that's cool. So he's like, hey, if that can happen, then maybe Gatsby could happen. Maybe all these rumors are just rumors and maybe he is authentic. Maybe he is real. I saw the medal. I saw the picture. So, you know, why not believe him? And now we have a transition, and Fitzgerald says, Roaring noon. Noon in Western literature often symbolizes the moment of expectation or a moment when you know something really big is going to happen. Roaring noon. In a well-fanned 42nd Street cellar, I met Gatsby for lunch. Why are they in a cellar? They're in a, I think speakeasy was the term for it, but they're basically having lunch in a basement. You go into a business that you can normally um, access or in a restaurant. And then if you know the password or the way to the back, then you can go down in the bottom and eat the same lunch, but you get to have alcohol during prohibition. Blinking away the brightness of the street outside, my eyes picked him out obscurely in the anteroom talking to another man. Mr. Carraway, this is my friend, Mr. Wolfsheim. A small flat-nosed Jew raised his large head and regarded me with two fine growths of hair which luxuriated in either nostril. After a moment, I discovered his tiny eyes in the half-darkness. So more stereotyping. 
um, this time of a Jewish man. And you have heard, I'm sure, of the Italian mafia, the Russian, is it mob or mafia? Italian mob, I think, Russian mafia. Sorry, I'm not up on my gangsters. And then um, there was like a Jewish mob as well. Sorry if I'm using the wrong terms, but that's who this guy is. So I took one look at him, said Mr. Wolfsheim, shaking my hand earnestly. And what do you think I did? What? I inquired politely, but evidently he was not addressing me, for he dropped my hand and covered Gatsby with his expressive nose. I handed the money to Catspa, and I said, All right, Catspa, don't pay him a penny till he shuts his mouth. He shut it then and there. Gatsby took an arm of each of us and moved forward into the restaurant, whereupon Mr. Wolfsheim swallowed a new sentence he was starting and lapsed into a somnambulatory abstraction. Look at the word somnambulatory. You'll see the root S-O-M-N. If you have insomnia, it means you can't sleep. So somn means sleeping. And then ambul, like ambulance, means moving um, or walking. So somnambulatory means sleepwalking. So he kind of, he was telling a story, and then when Gatsby kind of showed up, he swallowed it and kind of became like a sleepwalker. Like, he knows to shut his mouth about the past when it comes to Gatsby, because old people like to tell stories, but some of these stories of mobsters just shouldn't be said, because you could still get a hit from either the police or another mobster rival gang. Highballs, asked the head waiter. He wants to know if they want alcohol. This is a nice restaurant here, said Mr. Wolfsheim, looking at the Presbyterian nymphs on the ceiling, but I like across the street better. So the ceiling was painted. That was another kind of classy thing to do at that time period. Yes, highballs, agreed Gatsby to the waiter. And then to Mr. Wolfsheim, it's too hot over there. Hot and small, yes, said Mr. Wolfsheim, but full of memories. What place is that, I asked. The old Metropole. The old metropole, brooded Mr. Wilsheim gloomily, filled with faces dead and gone, filled with friends gone now forever. I can't so f- I can't forget so long as I lived the night they shot Rosie Rosenthal there. It was six of us at the table, and Rosie had eaten drunk a lot all evening. When it was almost morning, the waiter came up to him with a funny look and says somebody wants to speak to him outside. All right, says Rosie, and begins to get up, and I pulled him down in his chair. Let the bastards come in here if they want you, Rosie, but don't you so help me move outside this room. It was four o'clock in the morning then, and if we'd have raised the blinds, we'd have seen daylight. Did he go? I asked innocently. Sure he went. Mr. Wolfsheim's nose flashed me indignantly. He turned around in the door and says, don't let that waiter take away my coffee. Then he went out on the sidewalk and they shot him three times in his full belly and drove away. Four of them were electrocuted, I said, remembering. Five with Becker. His nostrils turned to me in an un- in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. So when Nick says that Wolfsheim's nostrils are looking at him, it's it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's kind of a rude way of characterizing him as having such small eyes that the only thing Nick notices is his huge nose. So it's a stereotype that Jewish people must have big noses and small eyes. It's not true, Um, but it's indicative of Fitzgerald's prejudice against them um, or his desire to develop what's called the stock character or a type of character that's very common. in like a specific line of work or or a racial class or um, group or something. 
Um, let's see. So Nick remembers that this is an actual true mob hit. And then when Wolfsheim says, I understand you're looking for a business connection, he's saying connection, but because of his thick New York accent with his nose, his nostrils, it sounds like connection. And so he assumes that the reason Gatsby has brought Nick to lunch is so that he can like work with him and that Nick can work with um, Wolfsheim and the mob. The juxtaposition or contrast of these two remarks was startling to Nick. Gatsby answered for me. Oh, no, he exclaimed. This isn't the man. No, Mr. Wolfsheim seemed disappointed. This is just a friend. I told you we'd talk about that some other time. Aha, we have a little hint. Gatsby must provide Wolfsheim with workers because he said we'll talk about that at another time. Maybe that's where he gets his money. Or... Maybe he just is friends with Wolfsheim and has been for a while and knows someone who wants to get into that line of work or wants to get into gambling or something, and he's going to connect them. We don't know for sure. I beg your pardon, said Mr. Wolfsheim. I had a wrong man. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfsheim, forgetting the more sentimental atmosphere of the old metropole, began to eat with ferocious delicacy. His eyes, meanwhile, roved very slowly all around the room. He completed the arc by turning to inspect the people directly behind. I think that, except for my presence, he would have taken one short glance beneath our own table. So he eats like someone who is very suspicious. Um, I, like probably 15 years ago, I was in a Bible study and there were two police officers in the Bible study. One was a female and one was a male. And they both would tell us whenever we went out to, um, lunch after, after Bible study or, or after church, they would say that they had to sit with their, um, facing the door. Like they couldn't have their backs to the door. And at first I thought well, it's kind of weird, but then when they explained it, it made sense. They said that, you know, they just don't like to be like vulnerable like that. They want kind of like command of the room or control of the room. It's kind of something that they're taught. And so I would imagine that a gangster would think of the same thing, especially with his experiences with Rosie Rosenthal. He watches everyone around him. He wants to know who's who's uh, spying or stalking or who's there, you know, what's going on. Nick notices it. Look here, old sport, said Gatsby, leaning toward me. I'm afraid you may, I made you a little angry this morning in the car. There was a smile again, but this time I held out against it. I don't like mysteries, I answered, and I don't understand why you won't come out frankly and tell me what you want. Why has it all got to come through Miss Baker? Oh, it's nothing underhand, he assured me. Miss Baker's a great sportswoman, you know, and she'd never do anything that wasn't all right. <laughs> Apparently he doesn't know that Jordan moved her ball, um, you know, in in a golf championship or that she left her car out in the rain with the top down. Suddenly he looked at his watch, jumped up and hurried from the room, leaving me with Mr. Wolfsheim at the table. He has to telephone, said Mr. Wolfsheim, following him with his eyes. So that's another reference to Gatsby getting more phone calls during lunch, but he is a businessman and that does happen frequently. Fine fellow, isn't he? Handsome to look at and a perfect gentleman. Yes, he's an Oxford man. He means to say Oxford, but it comes out that way with his accent. Oh, he went to Oxford College in England. You know Oxford College? I've heard of it. It's one of the most famous colleges in the world. Have you known Gatsby for a long time, I inquired? Several years, he answered in a gratified way. I made the pleasure of his acquaintance just after the war. But I knew I had discovered a man of fine breeding after I talked with him an hour. 
Okay, so first of all, Gatsby did serve in the war. But how do you know if someone has fine breeding if you've only known them for an hour? I mean, it takes months, years to truly get to know someone. Um, you know, on a personal note, I've been shocked when I have um, known someone for a year or two, sometimes five years, and then they do something that I never thought they would do. And then I found out later that they were like presenting themselves as they wish they were to me the whole time instead of who they actually were. So um, when he says that he knew him for an hour and knew he was a man of fine breeding, eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, there's a kind of man you'd like to take home and introduce to your mother and sister. Wow, he has a lot of confidence in him. So maybe I'm just being judgmental. He paused. I see you're looking at my cuff buttons. I hadn't been looking at them, but I did now. They were composed of oddly familiar pieces of ivory. Finest specimens of human molars, he informed me. Well, I inspected them. That's a very interesting idea. Yep, he flipped his sleeves up under his coat. Yeah, Gatsby's very careful about women. He would never so much as look at a friend's wife. So he must have overheard Nick saying, like, that he didn't know why everything had to come through Jordan Baker um, earlier. Why is it all come through Baker? Um, and so he's trying to reassure Nick, like, don't worry, he doesn't want your girlfriend or your wife. There's something more to it. Why in the world would this guy have um, human molars as cufflinks? So if you're a fan of criminal shows like I am or like I used to be before I had Connor and now they uh, scare me too much <laughs> to watch Criminal Minds, but serial killers like trophies. Um, and ooh, if you like those kinds of shows or something, the podcast Crime Junkie is actually really exciting. So anyway, um, they will keep, you know, specimens of like hair, teeth, jewelry, whatever they can get from their victims. Um, during the Nazi regime, um, the Nazis made, um, lampshades out of Jewish, um, skin. You can Google that. Um, they put Jewish hair in pillows. It was like, ugh, just sick. It makes me sick. But anyway, um, that is what he's doing. And they often, killers or mobsters or gangsters, will keep these trophies like visible as a warning to people like, don't mess with me, um, but not too visible. And now tattoos have that kind of um, power. Like, I don't remember what they are, but um, I've heard in different news stories through the years that if people have tattoos on their faces of tears, it means either the number of people they've killed or the number of people they've lost or different symbols behind that. When I started teaching, um, I taught in New Hampshire and the kids could not wear bandanas at all because there was some kind of gang affiliation with the style and color of bandana they wore on their jean leg. I don't know. But that's what um, Wolfsheim is is into. He's obviously either killed someone or had someone killed. And he's letting Nick know, if you talk about anything I've said, you know, I, I can find you. Don't worry. I'll, I'll get you. Um, let's see. With the subject of this instinctive trust returned to the table, so Gatsby returned, and sat down, Mr. Wolfsheim drank his coffee with a jerk and got to his feet. I've enjoyed my lunch, he said, and I'm going to run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. Don't hurry, Meyer, said Gatsby without enthusiasm. Mr. Wolfsheim raised his hand in a sort of benediction. 
You're very polite, but I belong to another generation. He announced solemnly, you sit here and discuss your sports and your young ladies and your... He supplied an imaginary noun with another wave of his hand. As for me, I'm 50 years old and I won't impose myself on you any longer. As he shook hands and turned away, his tragic nose was trembling. I wondered if I had said anything to offend him. He becomes very sentimental sometimes, explained Gatsby. This is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York, a denizen of Broadway. Denizen means citizen of Broadway, so he likes um, Broadway shows. Gatsby's trying to characterize Meyer Wolfsheim as like an an educated, um, upper-class, you know, person who likes Broadway shows and orchestra and theater. And it's just not working on Nick because Nick went to Yale and is sees through it quickly. So Nick teases Gatsby. Who is he anyhow? An actor? No. A dentist? Ha ha. It's kind of a joke because of the human molar thing. Meyer Wolfsheim? No. He's a gambler. Gatsby hesitated, then added coolly. He's telling Nick something private to test Nick's loyalty. He's a man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fix the World Series, I repeated. The idea staggered me. I remembered, of course, that the World Series had been fixed in 1919, but if I had thought of it at all, I would have thought of it as the thing that merely happened, the end of some inevitable chain. It never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the faith of 50 million people with a single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. How did he happen to do that? I asked after a minute. He just saw the opportunity. Well, why isn't he in jail? They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. So if you don't know um, the story behind it, you can Google it. But it was the 1919 World Series baseball. And the um, I think it was the uh, White Sox were going to play. And they threw their own game. They lost it on purpose because if they lost they would win a ton of money. Um, It was kind of a gambling scheme. And then they were known as the Black Sox because of it. And it it put kind of a, um, a dark spot on baseball and professional sports because the spectators and the people who believed in the game, they were so disappointed and angry and upset that the players they trusted and believed in and had so much faith in would do that just for money. Um, and you know, it was one of the first big time scandals, um, in America and, uh, that really affected and hurt the public. And it was supposedly set up by Arnold Rothstein and, um, Fitzgerald was his neighbor and Fitzgerald kind of thought he was cool, but kind of like bad at the same time. And so I think he included him as kind of a nod to him. Um, so Wolfsheim is the one who did that in the book. I insisted on paying the check. As a waiter brought my change, I caught sight of Tom Buchanan across the crowded room. Come along with me for a minute, I said. I've got to say hello to someone. When he saw us, Tom jumped up and took half a dozen steps in our direction. Where have you been? He demanded eagerly. Daisy's furious because you haven't called us up. This is Mr. Gatsby, Mr. Buchanan. They shook hands briefly, and a strained, unfamiliar look of embarrassment came over Gatsby's face. How have you been anyhow, demanded Tam, Tom of me. How do you happen to come up so um, to come up this far to eat? I've been having lunch with Mr. Gatsby. I turned toward Mr. Gatsby, but he was no longer there. Now, there's another narrative shift in perspective. So we had Nick narrating, and then we had some dialogue 
with Gatsby and Wolfsheim. And now we have a shift in narrative um, perspective. This is going to Jordan. Jordan is speaking. One October day in 1917. So think about it. It's 1922 right now. So this is five years earlier. Said Jordan Baker that afternoon sitting up very straight on a straight chair in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel. I was walking along from one place to another on the sidewalks and half on the lawns. I was happier on the lawns because I had on shoes from England with rubber knobs on the soles that bit into the soft ground. I had on a new plaid skirt also that blew a little in the wind, and whenever this happened, the red, white, and blue banners in front of all the houses stretched out stiff and said tut, 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 tut in a disapproving way. The largest of the banners and the largest of the lawns belonged to Daisy Faye's house. She was just 18. So that's how when I told you that Daisy was 22, so she'd be 19, So she's 23 in the book. Um, so she was 18 in 1917. Um, Two years older than me, so Jordan is 21 in the book, and in this time period she was 16. And by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville, Kentucky. She dressed in white and had a little white roadster all day long from the telephone rang in her house. So white is a symbol of wealth. Definitely not purity, which the next part of the sentence will indicate. And excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night anyways for an hour. What? Yeah. So Fitzgerald writes this ambiguously, but something's going on. Daisy is very popular. She's probably one of the most beautiful um, of the girls, or she's like, I don't know, an eight or nine out of 10, if you were to rank her um, popularity. Um, But because of her personality and her wealth and influence and status, it makes her a 10, if you've ever heard of of that. It's kind of a sick way of ranking people. Women do it to men, men do it to women, but um, that's kind of what's going on. So these officers all want to date her and she's all for it. Where are her parents? Well, first of all, she's 18. She's a young woman. She can make up her own mind. But second of all, um, dating an officer was a very respectable thing to do. Um, it was kind of a, a rite of passage for a man, a, a quote, real man, especially an upper class man to serve in the military. Even Prince William and Prince Harry served. Um, it's just something you do. So her parents were probably hopeful that she would end up dating one of these, quote, gentlemen and settle down, especially if they're older. Um, not too much, but old enough to take care of her. Let's see. Um, so anyways, for an hour. So she would give them each hour-long dates or sit on the porch for an hour, and then that one would leave, and maybe she'd have another one scheduled. It's almost like how people date nowadays. Most people on a first or second date don't go to like a full dinner because if you hate the person, you're stuck. Or you, if you're paying, then you're really stuck. You're paying to have dinner with someone you don't even like. Um, so people generally go to get coffee or, um, you know, a drink, um, at a bar or something. So Daisy is dating a lot. When I came opposite her house that morning, her white roadster was beside the curb and she was sitting in it with a lieutenant I'd never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other. She didn't see me until I was five feet away. Hello, Jordan. She called unexpectedly. Please come here. 
I was flattered that she wanted to speak to me because of all the older girls, I admired her the most. She asked if I was going to the Red Cross and make bandages. I was. Well, then, would I tell them that she couldn't come that day? The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime. And because it seemed romantic to me, I've remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gatsby, and I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years. Even after I'd met him on Long Island, I didn't realize it was the same man. That was 1917. So Daisy Faye Buchanan did date Jay Gatsby. And they were apparently completely in love and so engrossed in each other that Daisy didn't even notice Jordan was near her. That was 1917. By the next year, I had a few beaux myself, boyfriends, or guys she dated, and I began to play in tournaments. So I didn't see Daisy very often. She went with a slightly older crowd when she went with anyone at all. Wild rumors were circulating about her, how her mother had found her packing her bag one winter night to go to New York and say goodbye to a soldier who was going overseas. So that makes sense. That was Gatsby. He was in the military. He dated Daisy when he was a lieutenant in the military, and she wanted to say goodbye to him. She was effectually prevented, but she wasn't on speaking terms with her family for several weeks. If this reminds you of The Notebook, it should. I have a feeling that Nicholas Sparks read um, Fitzgerald. After that, she didn't play around with the soldiers anymore, but only with a few flat-footed, short-sighted young men in town who couldn't get into the army at all. Why did her family stop her from saying goodbye to the soldier? Maybe they were worried that she would get married, a quick marriage, or that she would run away with him, and they're not. that's not their dream. That's no parent's dream for their child, that they'd have a rushed marriage. You know, you want it to be a memorable occasion where you happily give your child into this new union. Um, And then she doesn't date soldiers anymore. Why not? Because they leave. All right. By the next autumn, she was gay again, gay as ever. She had a debut after the armistice. So look at that. By the next autumn. So it took her from winter all the way into the next autumn. So almost a full year for her to kind of recover from losing um, Gatsby. And I don't know why they didn't just continue to write and call and, you know, have this romance, but we will find out later. So by the next autumn, she was gay as ever. She had a debut after the armistice. So she Like a debut was like a coming out party where she's dateable. Um, And in February, she was presumably engaged to a man from New Orleans. In June, she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago. Hello, rebound romance. So she was presumably engaged. Even if she wasn't engaged, she was dating someone enough to be ready to be engaged. That was in February. And then March, April, May, June, four months later, she got married. That is a rushed marriage to know someone for four months and get married. Very, very scary. Not only do you not know someone's like lifestyle, I guess, and you don't really get the chance to know their family, but you also don't really get to see them in every season. Um, and it's, it's uh, dangerous for her. And now we know how miserable she is and that he's a jerk. Um, and that she says in chapter one, 
her face is sad and she says to Nick, I've been everywhere and done everything and seen everything. I'm sophisticated. And she like pokes fun at herself and all of the sadness she's been through. All right. So life lesson 101, don't get married after four months. So in June, she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago with more pomp and circumstance than Louisville, Kentucky had ever known before. He came down with 100 people in four private cars and hired a whole floor of the Seelbach Hotel. And the day before the wedding, he gave her a string of pearls valued at $350,000. And I looked that up. Um, At the time the movie was created, there was so much interest in the book that they had um, pearl necklaces auctioned off at Christie's in New York. And they were valued at, um, I believe, I have the article at school, but I want to say that it was at least $3 million. Um, for those because they were real pearls and um, real pearls are hard to find in the ocean now because they've been so overly harvested. Um, And they were like the diamonds back in the 20s. Um, So if I can find the articles, I'll put them on Schoology, but it was fascinating. I was a bridesmaid. I came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner and I found her lying on her bed as lovely as the June night in her flowered dress and as drunk as a monkey. She had a bottle of, I think it's Sauternay. I don't know. I'm not up on my alcohol. In one hand and a letter in the other. Congratulate me, she muttered. Never had a drink before, but oh, how I do enjoy it. What's the matter, Daisy? I mean, could you imagine the night before she's um, supposed to get married um, or half an hour before the bridal dinner? And, you know, she should be dancing and singing and being so excited and happy and taking pictures. And instead, she's drunk and she's um, out of her mind. And it scares Jordan. I was scared, I can tell you. I'd never seen a girl like that before. Here at Darius, she groped around in a wastebasket she had with her on the bed and pulled out the string of pearls. Kate, take them downstairs and give them to whoever they belong to. Tell them all Daisy changed her mind. Say Daisy's changed her mind. She began to cry. She cried and cried. So she threw the pearls out. But does she really want to throw them away? No. If she really wanted to throw the pearls away, she wouldn't put them in a hotel wastebasket that's cleaned daily and never leaves the room. She'd throw them out the window. She'd give them to a chambermaid. She'd give them to her mother. She'd Call Tom and say, come get these. I'm not getting married. I don't want to marry you. Goodbye. Instead, she gives them to Jordan. She began to cry. She cried and cried. I rushed out and found her mother's maid, and we locked the door and got her into a cold bath. She wouldn't let go of the letter. She took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up into a wet ball and only let me leave it in the soap dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow. But she didn't say another word. We gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead and hooked her back into her dress. And a half an hour later, when we walked out of the room, the pearls were around her neck and the incident was over. So she got a letter that upset her so much she started drinking and got drunk and wouldn't let go of the letter and wanted to call the wedding off. So we can assume that the letter is from maybe a former lover. Next day at five o'clock, she married Tom Buchanan without so much as a shiver and started off on a three-month trip to the South Seas. 
I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back, and I thought I'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband. I love that Fitzgerald uses the word mad instead of in love with, because mad implies that you're crazy, that you have so many endorphins running through your body that you literally are out of your mind. And if you've ever seen someone in love, that's how they are. And if you are the friend who's telling your friend, this person is bad for you, and they're living in like la-la land, that's why. It's not completely their fault. It's a chemical reaction. So we know that this letter is from a former lover who's probably saying, don't get married. I still love you. What are you doing? Why are you getting married? I saw it in the newspaper. You know, please wait for me. And we know that she wants to, but she's torn. She's like those girls on The Bachelorette or Bachelor or whatever, or The Bachelor when they have to choose between two people and they're like, I'm in love with both of them. And it's such a messed up show. I think that's why I like it. But anyway, that's kind of what's going on with um, with Daisy right now. I'm going to click out because I only have an hour. And then I'm going to start the new podcast. Same chapter. Okay, I'm back. So I'm starting with the paragraph. I saw them in Santa, Bar- Santa Barbara. I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back, and I thought I'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband. And I used that word, I highlighted that word mad. If you were um, writing your rhetorical analysis um, essay, you'd talk about the switches in points of view or the styles of narration. And you would probably talk about diction and how Daisy had gone kind of, quote, crazy or mad about her husband. I guess it's a kind of idea that once you make a choice to be with someone You put your entire heart and soul into that relationship, even if you have feelings for, quote, the one that got away, because I don't know anyone who's gone into marriage thinking, eh, let's see how this works out, or man, I hope this works out, or this is my first marriage. This is what it feels like. You know, I don't know anyone who's gone into it flippantly. Um, Everyone goes into it hoping for the best. They might have doubts, but they... They never think, oh, I can't wait for my first divorce. So Daisy is putting her whole heart and soul into this relationship, this marriage with Tom. If Tom left the room for a minute, she'd look around uneasily. Ooh, she has a gut feeling that he's a cheater. And say, where's Tom gone? And wear the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door. Either that or she's codependent. She used to sit on the sand with his head in her lap by the hour, rubbing her fingers over his eyes and looking at him with unfathomable delight. It was touching to see them together. It made you laugh in a hushed, fascinated way. That was in August. A week after I left Santa Barbara, Tom ran into a wagon on the Ventura Road one night and ripped a front wheel off his car. Probably drunk driving, because he drinks a lot. The girl who was with him, oh, uh uh-oh, got into the papers, too, because her arm was broken. She was one of the chambermaids in the Santa Barbara Hotel. Hmm, why would Tom be giving a ride to a hotel chambermaid? One guess, right? I mean, he's not giving her a ride home. If he was being a, quote, nice guy, he would give her money for a taxi or order a taxi or even have his own chauffeur drive her. He's not being a nice guy. He's getting, I don't even, I don't want to be inappropriate. Um, <laughs> well, he's getting a ride, I guess you could say, <laughs> or he's just getting sex. But the sad thing is, if you look at it, they were married in June. 
And they came back from their three-month trip, which three months, June, it'd be July, August, September. They shouldn't be back until September 21st or so um, because they got married, I believe, June 21st or, or around there. And um, Tom's already cheating. He he can't even make it two months without cheating. Wow, don't get married too early. Um, get to know someone well. And then the next April, Daisy had her little girl. Okay, so if they were married in June, do the math with me. July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. So 10 months. So not an illegitimate child. This is, you know, within the confines of marriage. But Daisy knew she had to have known that she was pregnant when Tom cheated. So therefore, she can't get an annulment or a quickie divorce or anything, even if she wanted to. Um, It would have been even more scandalous for both families. And I'm sure that she had pressure from her family to stay in the marriage. Um, And she loves Tom. Why else would she stay all of this time and continue to put up with his shenanigans? There's something about him that she needs and wants, maybe even besides the money. The next April, Daisy had her little girl, and they went to France for a year, (laughs) waiting for it to blow away, right? I saw them one spring in, I think it's Canis, and later in Deauville, and then they came back to Chicago to settle down. Daisy was popular in Chicago, as you know. They moved with a fast crowd, all of them young and rich and wild, but she came out with an absolutely perfect reputation, perhaps because she doesn't drink. It's a great advantage not to drink among hard-drinking people. You can hold your tongue, and moreover, you can time any little irregularity of your own so that everybody else is so blind that they don't see or care." Perhaps Daisy never went in for a more at all, and yet there's something in that voice of hers. So it's Jordan speaking, and Jordan trusts Tom completely to tell him all of this, but Jordan is also a bit of a gossip. We saw that in chapter one when she said to Nick, didn't you know Tom's got some girl in New York? I thought everybody knew. So even Jordan says that there's something that keeps Daisy connected to Tom. Maybe it was money. Um, And yet there's something in that voice of hers, Nick thought, like something sensual, something needy, something insecure. That's why I think Daisy is more of a codependent type, um, maybe than a narcissist, or she could be both. She could vacillate depending on her, um, her needs. Well, about six weeks ago, she heard the name Gatsby for the first time in years. It was when I asked you, do you remember, if you knew Gatsby in West Egg. After you had gone home, she came into my room and woke me up. That's how disturbed Daisy was. And said, what Gatsby? And when I described him, I was half asleep. She said in the strangest voice, it must be the man she used to know. It wasn't until then that I connected this Gatsby with the officer in her white car. So life before Facebook and before social media was easier in some ways. Um, There was, you know, a time when you just lost track of people and you literally never saw them again. You had no way to connect to them ever again. Um, And you would be way too embarrassed to like go to their parents' house or find someone who knew them because people would think maybe you were a cheater. Nowadays, we have Facebook and Instagram and all the places I don't even know about that you guys know about where you can reconnect with people. And um, nowadays, 
you get that feeling if you see an IM from someone or a DM and you're like, what do they want? All you have to do is do a little background checking and see that they're, you know, ending a relationship or something. And you know that they're looking for a replacement. Well, Daisy didn't have that um, power, I guess you could call it. She doesn't know um, about Gatsby. She hasn't seen him in years and she's probably just dying of curiosity and, um, interest, especially since Tom is cheating. All right. When Jordan Baker had finished telling all this, we had left the plaza for half an hour and we're driving in a Victoria through Central Park. The sun had gone down behind the tall apartments of the movie stars and in the West 50s and the clear voices of girls already gathered like crickets on the grass rose hot through the hot twilight. I'm the Sheik of Araby. Your love belongs to me. At night when you're asleep, into your tent I'll creep. Okay, that is creepy. <laughs> the lyrics to that, like stalking kind of. Um, and I think Fitzgerald wants that kind of codependent, needy, I can't live without you, you're my world, you're my life um, kind of stuff where, look, there's a, a point in a healthy love relationship where you are a little codependent. I think my parents got married the summer of 69 and are still married and still happy. Um, best friends really. And there is a type of neediness, you know, when my mom would go for walks, my dad might call me after an hour. I'm worried about your mother. I'm like, check the porch, you know, and she's usually out there. And, or my mom would call me and say, I'm worried about your dad. You know, um, they had a bomb threat at school and he's working in the cafeteria and this has never happened. And I just kind of talk her through it. So there is that, but this is kind of that creepy codependency where like, if I can't have you, no one will. If your parents let you, there's a really good show on Netflix called You, Y-O-U, but check with your parents first because there are some parts that are risque, but it's kind of that kind of um, scary, quote, love. And look up codependency if you like psychology. It's fascinating. There are codependent personality types and codependent people tend to attract um, people with addiction issues, alcoholics, gambling, sex. Um, food, all of those issues, and codependents try to heal, help, fix, save, solve those people. And it's a very unhealthy union. So it's helpful for you guys at your age to learn personality types, figure out yours, because everyone's got issues. No one's 100% healthy, so that you can avoid some of those unhealthy unions. All right. It was Sorry, uh, Psych 101 with Bowman. It was a strange coincidence, I said, but it wasn't a coincidence at all. Why not? Gatsby bought that house so Daisy would be just across the bay. Then it had not been merely the stars to which he had aspired on that June night. He came alive to me, delivered suddenly from the womb of his purposeless splendor. He wants to know, continued Jordan, if you'll invite Daisy to your house some afternoon and then let him come over. The modesty of the demand shook me, so Gatsby wasn't trying to move in on Jordan. He just wants Nick to invite Daisy over for tea. <laughs> he waited five years and bought a mansion where he dispensed starlight to casual moths so he could come over some afternoon to a stranger's garden. Did I have to know all this before he could ask such a little thing? He's afraid. He's waited so long. He thought you might be offended. You see, he's a regular tough underneath it all. Something worried me. 
Why didn't he ask you to arrange a meeting, Jordan? He wants her to see his house, she explained, and your house is right next door. Oh, I think he half expected her to wander into one of his parties some night, went on Jordan, but she never did. Then he began asking people casually if they knew her, and I was the first one he found. It was that night he sent for me at his dance, and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it. Of course, I immediately suggested a luncheon in New York, and I thought he'd go mad. I don't want to do anything out of the way, he kept saying. I want to see her right next door. Then I said, you were a particular friend of Tom's. He started to abandon the whole idea. He doesn't know very much about Tom, though he said he's read a Chicago paper for years just on the chance of catching a glimpse of Daisy's name. So before you think Gatsby's a stalker, take off your 2020 lens, set it aside, and think 1922. There's no social media. There's no internet. Gatsby's dying to know what Daisy's done with her life. He didn't hear from her after, you know, the letter in the bathtub. And he's he's just curious. She's the one that got away. He hasn't been married or dating. He doesn't even date, it said in, in chapter uh chapter three. Remember when no no drunk head bobbed against his and he could have had anyone, he doesn't have anyone. So he wants to know kind of like, you know, what if she still has feelings and what's gone on, but he doesn't want anything to do with Tom. He doesn't want Tom to know this. Maybe he just needs closure. We don't know. But he was nervous about Nick being friends with Tom. Um, so he asked Jordan to ask Nick and to feel Nick out um, so that he could have a tea and then um, kind of show up at Nick's, you know, when, when Nick and Daisy are having tea. Um, so he's not stalking Daisy at all. He doesn't interfere with her life at all. He just watches for her name. It was dark now, but I do agree it's dysfunctional. It's not healthy for Gatsby. It was dark now, and as we dipped under a little bridge, I put my arm around Jordan's golden shoulder and drew her toward me and asked her to dinner. Suddenly, I wasn't thinking of Daisy and Gatsby anymore, but of this clean, hard, limited person who dealt in universal skepticism and who leaned back jauntily just within the circle of my arm. A phrase began to beat in my ears with a sort of heady excitement. They're only the pursued, the pursuing, the busy, and the tired. And Daisy ought to have something in her life, murmured Jordan to me. Does she want to see Gatsby? She's not to know about it. Gatsby doesn't want her to know. You're just supposed to invite her to tea. We passed a barrier of dark trees and then the facade of 59th Street, a block of delicate pale light beamed down into the park. Unlike Gatsby and Tom Buchanan, I had no girl whose disembodied face floated along the dark cornices and blinding signs, so I drew up the girl beside me, tightening my arms. Her wan, scornful mouth smiled, so I drew her up again closer, this time to my face. So Nick ends this chapter with a kiss to Jordan. So chapter one ended with Nick looking out over the water, the unquiet darkness surrounding him, and he was kind of disturbed. Chapter two ended when he was um, with um, Mr. McKee, and then he's alone in the subway station and kind of like disturbed and depressed and drunk. And then chapter three ended, I think, when he left Gatsby's party. Let's see. 
Yes, and he talked about how he had to, um, how lonely he was, and how he had to break it off with the girl back home and the girl in Jersey. And now, chapter four, we have a different feel because he's ending the chapter with a kiss, his first kiss with someone he really has feelings for. And he's starting to have feelings for her because she trusts him with this story and she gives him the background. And I think because when he thought he might lose her to Gatsby, it reali- he realized that he really did like her. So we have a connection here. And um, also just the beautiful description of nature, which is healing. And finally, Nick decides, I want that kind of love. I want that kind of like deep love and interest and passion for a woman that I would like orchestrate a tea and you know, go after her even when she's like not even available emotionally or physically because she's married. Like that's, even though it hurts, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Um, And so he wants that. And so he looks at Jordan and he's like, hey, she's here. Maybe this can work. And he gives her that kiss. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope I haven't divulged too much or gone too much ahead, but I feel like explaining things is kind of helpful. All right. Have a good day.